Now on Food FM, talking all things bread, it's Arthur Potts Dawson with Arthur's Table. Arthur's Table on Food FM with your host, Arthur Potts Dawson. Okay, well, here we are uh, from Food FM. I really appreciate the time that you're all giving to us. Thank you so much, Andrew, Roman, and Brett. Um, just fabulous to be able to, to start this discussion. Um, the idea is, is that, you know, food is obviously one of the most important things in our lives. And there are about three different staffs of life, which I consider to be important. And there is corn in the Americas, there's rice in the Asians, you know, in the Far East, and then there's wheat. And I really wanted to talk and open up a discussion around wheat and, and, and how wheat became bread. And we've got three people today who are going to be talking about that. So we have Andrew Wilkinson, who makes wheat. I'm not even going to do him a disservice by saying exactly how he makes it, because it's unbelievable. We have Brett St. Clair, who makes the most delicious breads, um, sourdough breads, which I eat all the time. Um, and, and Romain Tessier, uh, who's a, a vinoisier, or patissier, a, a chef. Um, and uh, the capacity for, for fine cakes and pastries I've seen him make is just unbelievable. So we have three... Um, completely separate but very well connected chefs, bakers and producers who are all connected to wheat. Um, and for me that really needs to be where we, we start the story of food, certainly from a civilised perspective, um, and how food became locked down in a region or a zone and how wheat then generated, I suppose, society or civilization as we call it. Um, and so I've invited three people in today to discuss it. And in that discussion, it's going to be a quick introduction from each of them. Uh, then we're going to go into a longer description of each one, of what each person does, how, what they believe in, how they produce the, the, the food that they do. And then we'll go to an open panel discussion. Um, and I thought best that if each of us could introduce themselves, uh, perhaps uh, starting with Brett, a, a quick intro, what you do, where you are, and um, what you believe in, and then we'll move on. <laughs> okay. Um... I'm Brett Sinclair, I'm the head baker at Bakers and Kai in Bristol. Um, we make solely sourdough breads and pastries, and uh, that's been our thing ever since uh, lockdown began. Great. And uh, hi, Romain. Romain, want to introduce yourself? Hi, guys. So, yeah, my name is Romain Tessier. So, I'm a baker, tourier, and also pastry chef, we can say, right? Um, I've been working in many different places, and at the moment, I just started a company called The Sourdough Box, where I'm like, delivering bread kit for people to bake bread at home. Fabulous, thank you Romain. And Andrew, uh, a quick intro? Yeah, hello, I'm uh, Dr Andrew Wilkinson. I have been farming and involved in food production research around that for 30 years. Um, live and farm up in Northumberland in the northeast of England, uh, organic farm, and we've been growing and milling cereals up here for 20, 30 years, and I've got about 20 years of uh, research knowledge on the back of, uh, as a partner in international collaborative projects in organic crop production systems. Um, so yeah, mine's bursting with useless information. <laughs> well, it's not useless, Andrew, it's vital. What I think we're going to do with this um, interview panel discussion is begin at the, the beginning, where we kind of need to understand where the flour comes from for Brett and Roman to be able to make their delicious breads and pastries. Um, and Andrew, um, I, I appreciate that you know, some of the work that you've done uh, has been almost groundbreaking with regards to nutrition, growing organically, understanding soil, and really working out how wheat in Britain needs to be resilient and how we move forward with wheat production. Um, so it'd be wonderful just to sort of open up the discussion, perhaps beginning at the start. I know that you've um, went into wheat to farming a, as a sort of a passion rather than a family thing. Um, but could you sort of fill out the storyline between starting to produce wheat and then learning and becoming a wheat master? OK. Um, well, I think probably it's quite useful just to um, paint a picture of the landscape of British agriculture 30 years ago and why I needed to... Um, to develop and, and adapt to different uh, systems. So back in the sort of mid-1990s, uh, we were just coming into the common agricultural policies, reforms for agriculture, and we were being encouraged to um, take land out of production because the agricultural policies system was, was set up to produce excess. 
and by by 1998 <clears throat> UK agriculture really started to to slump in a big way and the value of our produce and in my case cereals because that's what my farm uh, um, lends itself to uh, living up here in the northeast um, we were getting no value for that for that corn whatsoever uh, it was 56 57 pounds a ton uh, and the economic value at that stage was around 120 130 pounds a ton so a lot of farms were just going to the wall and going out of business and we took the opportunity then <clears throat> to convert our whole farm to organic production because that's what i wanted to do and for all sorts of ethical and uh, uh, and personal reasons and at that stage there were no other organic cereal growers up here in the northeast so i kind of had to had to write the the um the handbook myself if you like and i approached newcastle university uh, who were just setting up uh, a new research program at that stage and sort of asked them the, you know, the basic questions, you know, how do we grow organic cereals this far north? And the professor who uh, headed up that um, program said, well, what do you want out of, the, out, of the, out of the research? And I said, well, if I could just get milling quality wheat, you know, get that extra 20 pounds a tonne, that would be kind of that would be my goal, just to get some added value. And actually, little did I know the, the answer to that question was going to take me down a, a journey that's now been over 20 years long and, um, and has resulted in us growing some exceptional milling quality wheats up here, um, going away from the conventional modern short straw hybrid uh, wheats, which were the product of 70 years of, of plant breeding in Western Europe, and really engaging with plant breeders to to get straw height and nutrition and quality back into our cereals, which under organic conditions with good soil fertility management, you can do. And you're right, Arthur, the considered wisdom then was you could only grow UK milling quality wheat with spring sown short strawed cereals in the south of England. And I grow them every year with tall strawed winter sown cereals in the north of England um, to the extent where we built our own flour mill to, to, to add, get the added value of those, those cereals and find a proper home for them. And our luck, I suppose, was, uh, was the, the economic downturn in 2008-9, where we'd really just started getting our teeth into, into milling, that so many young chefs came on the scene uh, or postgraduate uh, students who didn't have a job to go to because of the economic downturn went into into uh, into the restaurant business went into baking and we have a fantastic collaboration now with young artisan chefs and bakers who really get you know what we are doing and uh, and are producing some fantastic breads and pastries so yeah we we we're very proud of that collaboration but it uh, took and that's important, Andrew. It's important, isn't it? There's this sort of this go-between, you know, understanding that um, you know soil health, you know, s straw height, you know, the size of the wheat ears, and how you mill them, and what's left over, and, and, and the quality of the of the flour, and then it goes into the tin to be baked into a loaf of bread or, or, or a fine pastry. Um, but do you see that there's a relationship between good soil, healthy plants, good wheat? And great bread. I mean, how how in, engaged are you in the whole process? Oh, very, um, very. My my um, my, uh, my final year's uh, um, dissertation when I was at university uh, was in uh, soil management. That's that's the, you know, the the backbone of my of my knowledge, uh, and I've and I've used that uh, every day uh, to develop how we farm. But I think really I have to quote. Uh, I, I stand on the shoulders of much greater men and um, the, the, the foremost soil scientist of the last century was, was, a, uh, um, was a man called William Albrecht, an American. And he sums up really everything we need to know today about sustainable food production. And he was looking at the, the massive soil erosion of the Dust Bowl in the 1930s and 40s in America. And he basically and simply said, that all food is reconstituted soil. 
and you can't get good food from bad soil. And that really is the essence of, of the whole soil association organic movement of, of, of sustainable, uh, environmentally you know, conscious uh, uh, farming systems. Um, that the soil, if you're not putting the fertility from a, from a chemical, uh, you know, from a bag of fertilizer produced by a, by a factory somewhere, it has to come from nature. And nature produces the best quality uh, uh, chemicals that we that we possess. Uh, so if we put those into our into the foods we're growing properly, whether that's slow maturation grass-fed beef or slow maturation tall-strawed wheats, in my case, uh, you get the benefit of that. Uh, but it's a very very long cycle. There's no quick fix to it. So in order to get that system right. For our, for my children's generation, um, we need to be thinking about that soil management now, and it's critical. Yeah, it, it is everything. I think. I mean, one of the things that, that's really interesting about the, the food industry and your point about young chefs coming up through and and making delicious products and, and turning artisan wheat into amazing pastries and, and breads, but is the fact that we think so immediately, don't we? We think this year, next year, the next three years, or what's the trend? What's food doing? But actually, <laughs> we need to be thinking generationally. What are we putting on the soil? Are we using chemicals? How are we looking at biodegradable carbon and does it fix in the soil? Um, so it's a, it's a generational long game, isn't it? Rather than quick fixes. Yes, and I think uh, we have, uh, as, a, as a community of farmers over the last 70 years, we have been asked to fulfill the quick fix uh, um, uh, problem. Uh, and there's always been a, a quick fixed feed people quickly and you can't blame our grandparents generation for being hungry that's that's that, that, there was a need for a quick fix but i think that's come to an end we, we, you know my farming cycle requires seven to ten years of planning in order to get that rotation right and and changes in weather patterns will always throw a spanner in the works uh, so we need to build resilience into that plan and we have to be able to adapt our cooking and baking techniques to deal with poor years uh, of harvests. But if we can get the soil management right, and if we can get the crop varieties right, we are reducing that that uh, that volatility in our in our food production system. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, resilience and, and volatility. I mean, these are words that are coming out nearly every day now, from very high level, from from the UN level all the way down to, to chefs and kitchens. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in, is, and we'll be talking to Brett and Roman in a minute about getting wheat in the door of a kitchen and then turning it into a, a product. But there's cost. And when you say, are we going to increase the yield of wheat to such a point that it's to do, you know, do away with all costs, but just get lots of wheat into the chefs so that they can produce it and it's cheap. But, but you know, Carolyn Steele is a friend of mine. She says there's no such thing as cheap food. There's a cost to be paid somewhere. And, and is there something you'd like to say about um, increasing yields versus cost of production or, or certainly cost in the kitchen? Uh, well, there's two, there's two strands to that, uh, um, to that discussion. One is that we don't need to be producing, be producing tons more wheat. We actually need to produce uh, less of the other things that are uh, less, um, less vital to our production. So we produce about 780 million tonnes of wheat uh, annually, globally, but actually that's only the third biggest crop in the world. The biggest crop in the world is sugarcane. 1.8 billion tonnes of sugar we produce as the biggest crop in the world. So we're doing something wrong, clearly there, because we're growing the wrong types. Of, we're growing a drug uh, first and, uh, and, and wheat comes a very poor third uh, in production. So. What's the yeah. second, uh, Andrew, just out of interest, what's the second production? Maize corn. Corn, yeah. Then rice and then potatoes. Um, uh, so, you know, we've got a population of, uh, of 7.5 billion. Uh, we're producing one, point, one and a half times the amount of food we need for that population. But a lot of it's the wrong type of food. Um, and our biggest killer in the world is still malnutrition. So we're doing something wrong. And... Mm. and uh, uh, getting um, fixated on tons per acre 
uh, is, is not a good way of feeding the world because that's just commodity farming. Mm -hmm. What we should be rewarding farmers for is, is nutritional density mm. per acre or per, per tonne of crop. Um, and that would focus people's minds on producing food rather than commodities. And, and part of what you're doing, uh, Andrew, is growing for flavour, aren't you? You're looking yeah. for flavour in the wheat. And, and how have you managed to, 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 to build flavour? I mean, are there tricks to the trade? Are there things that you can tell us to say, well, my wheat production is super tasty because... <laughs> uh, because I've spent so much time trying to get it right. Um, yeah, I, organic farming isn't tonnes per acre. Organic farming already has a yield penalty. So given that you can't grow tons per acre in, in, in organic systems, I looked at, you know, what was the most nutritious varieties that I could uh, that I could grow. And once you start growing a, uh, a crop that is over 90 centimetres in height, so most wheats in the modern landscape are 45 to 50 centimetres. Um, and they are genetically bred to be short, but they're actually induced by chemical sprays to for that extra to be to be held back. Um, so if you if you let the plant grow naturally above 90 centimeters, you change the way that the plant scavenges for those nutrients in the soil. And you also change the complexity of the structure of the of the gluten. Uh, and that in itself brings flavor. Uh, but actually, the thing I I was most surprised about when I started growing these these rare breed and heritage varieties is that they have a terroir and that really surprised me and because of how I grow my cereals I grow start much later than everybody else I try to avoid these heavy downpours of rain in late summer harvest very late and this produces uh, um, a wheat crop with tremendous blooms of yeast on them, natural wild yeasts. And because we stone mill, we stone grind, we don't uh, treat the, the wheat other than drying it down. And that preserves these natural blooms of yeast. And so the combination of, of the right variety and, and, and uh, in the right environment uh, is producing this tremendous terroir to our, um, this taste of place, I think the Americans like to call it, to our cereals. And uh, once you start trying spelt and emma and einkorn and going down the you know the rarer cereals uh that flavor component just enhances even more um ask me about rye later because that's a that's an interesting story of its own <laughs> well i mean it, it, this is all absolutely fascinating andrew and i think it's very important that um from a foodie's perspective i mean if you really need to understand wheat for many different reasons um one of them the fact that it's a staff of life and we've based everything that we've sort of grown on the past let's say five thousand years um wheat production has been vital mm -hmm. um but we come into today and today we've got young highly skilled chefs taking more artisanal wheats and turning them into delicious breads you know sourdoughs perhaps not using yeast or different leavening techniques um, and Andrew, what I'll do is if I, if I just leave you there on hold for a second and yeah. come across to, to sure. Brett and, and ask Brett. Um, so the next phase of wheat production is that Andrew has given you the most fabulous gluten-dense, uh, naturally wild yeast-holding, rare breed variety flowers uh, or flour. Uh, and then you hold it, hold it in your hand, Brett, and, and, and look at it and say, well, how more excited can I get than a, an amazing wheat flour to work with? Um, so can we draw a little bit of passion about, you know, finding flowers like this? Because I know that you perhaps don't work with Andrews, but I know that you work with excellent flowers and what they do for, for what you bake. No, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, for, for me, it's always focusing on flavour first. Um, so, you know, if you've got fantastic flavoured flowers, then it makes the work a lot easier. Um, so, so flour is something that obviously is, is probably the thing that you base all of the work that you do on every day. So when a big bag of flour arrives in from an amazing organic grower, I know that you use some amazing flowers. Yeah. Um, what triggers in your mind? What, what is it that you get excited about with this flour? Um, basically, it's just utilising it in the best way. Um, we keep the breads quite simple, um, don't add too many flavours to it. Um, we do a couple of specials now and then, but you know it, it will be showcasing the whole meal for the whole meal's sake 
the white for the white sake and not doing just purely white bleach flour breads. Brett, can you run me through then? Let's just take five minutes and just run me through what it is that you do with a bowl of flour. I mean, literally, let's talk about wholemeal or white, it doesn't matter, but we know that it's delicious and we know that it's arrived amazingly, but, but you've got that bowl of flour. What's the process? Because you make fabulous sourdough breads, don't you? And, and what is it that, that you, you look for and the textures and, and the moisture and the, 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 the volume of liquid to flour and sourdough starter? What is it you're looking for? I mean, we go reasonably high hydration, so our doughs end up around 82, 85%. Um, so we want something medium, strong, sort of 12.5% in protein. Um, we do all the, all the sourdough breads by hand, um, with the exception of um, brioches and our croissant doughs. So um, each day we've got about four or five containers of breads which we hand mix, and those are built through stages. So um, mix the flour, water, and the levant together, give it sort of 20 minutes, half an hour, see where the hydration's at with that then add the salt more water if needed and then we build up the strength in the dough for a series of folds every half hour until we get the strength that we're looking for and um, one thing we actually developed recently during the lockdown was we switched from doing a two-day process on the bread to a three-day process because um, we're a very small operation we um, don't have any night bakers it's just me and two other guys on the team in the bakery um, we found that a lot of the time we're coming in, you're having to mix the bread first thing in the morning and juggle baking um, through the oven at the same time. And so it's a lot of running backwards and forwards because our, our um, little prep areas out the back, um, as you know, the, uh, the ovens are at the front of the cafe. So it's a lot of running back and forth, trying to juggle stuff. And you kind of have to hit uh, mixing the doughs at the right time to get them um, proved to be able to shape them and retard them in the fridge overnight and then kind of fingers crossed they'll get to the right stage in the morning. So what we actually found was um, mixing two days out, um, getting it to where it needed to be, retarding the dough in bulk overnight and then shaping and molding the next day and then a further 24 hours in the refrigerator and just get the best flavor and it's also managing the process a lot better for the small operation that we are and so sourdough is is a particular type and it's become uber trendy the past 10 years everyone's sourdough everything i mean you get you get sourdough in all the all the supermarkets now as a sort of you know i appreciate that it's not all sourdough I mean, <laughs> it's, it's labeled sourdough but but so sourdough has become um, you know, something that people are now aware of. Ten years ago, it really wasn't anything other than, you know, someone would give you a sourdough starter because they'd just been to Italy and they, they'd smuggled it in in a, in a, in a knapsack. But yeah, exactly. sourdough, you know, it could be a, a hundred years old. I mean, there's character to sourdough. I mean, have you got any stories or anything you'd like to share about your passion for sourdough? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole hundred year old thing doesn't stand up for me because it's uh, a live culture. It's a constant living organism. I mean, you refresh a sourdough starter in the same way you refresh yogurt in essence. And no, no, nobody um, is ever going to claim a hundred year old yogurt for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it was just more that there was this the romantic nature of of this sort of sourdough mysticism. No one understood it really. It was just alive and it was bubbling away in the fridge or in the pantry and what do I do with it? But but there is certainly a passion for it and it's much better for the gut, isn't it? I and mean, it's better for your body, a sourdough than a yeast bread. I mean, we can talk to Roman about it in a minute if he knows anything or maybe Andrew, but but your passion for it, Brett, is, is, is apparent because you make some fabulous sourdough croissants. I've seen sourdough, um, what did you make the other day? Uh, Stollen bread. Um, and can you tell me what it is, how you've been experimenting the sourdough and, and why it's important? It's important for me because, again, it's, it's just flavour. We, um, during the lockdown, we couldn't get um, any fresh yeast and we started trying to do a limited offering of anything that we could. And people were still coming back day after day and like, have you got croissants yet? Have you got croissants yet? And it's like, well, we can't get any yeast to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I... I sort of took a punt on trying a, a sweet levan recipe um because sourdough culture doesn't actually respond well to 
enrich those anything with high sugar because uh, the sugar just um, dries the yeast out and kills it essentially. So it's not the, um, the most adept thing for making a croissant or a sweet dough with, but actually by feeding the starter a little bit of sugar each day with each refresh, it actually builds up a tolerance so it can um, it can work with sweet doughs. And so we we tried that and I've always kind of been ambivalent about sourdough pastries because you know they're predominantly butter they're rich and it's like what's sourdough going to add to it and we tried it and it's like actually it adds a real lot to it mm -hmm. it gives it gives it a lot of dimension and, and interesting because you're saying that you've got customers coming in day after day i mean i know that lockdown has been difficult and they've and I know they come to the front of the cafe and they order some bread they'll take away a cookie maybe order a coffee but how have people been responding, the general public been responding to the sourdough work that you've been doing and, and the flours and the breads that you make? Uh, really fantastically. Um, we've, we went from being a, a cafe that did a, a little bit of bread on the side as what we do to it completely being what we do. And it's really, really nice when people come in and they don't just ask for a croissant. They're like, I'd like a sourdough croissant, please. They know what it is now and what we do, which is really, really exciting. And Brett, just before we move across to Roman, when you hear someone like Andrew talk about the, the, the depth to which wheat production needs to both change in, in the, the, the sort of general terms of wheat flour making, but also the passion that someone like Andrew puts into wheat making, or sorry, flour making, um, it certainly encourages you, encourages you to, to keep baking, right? No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Roman, we'll come across. Thank you, Brett. We'll come back. Um, Roman, so, you know, we've gone through the journey of wheat production, um, you know, understanding flavor, understanding how, um, you know, gluten is produced and natural wild yeasts, uh, using rare breed varieties. And we spoke to Brett a little bit about sourdough and understanding, you know, um, how it works a little bit uh, and how bread production, you know, uh, you know, is, is a difficult thing to do. You know, have to, to rotate it through your kitchen, from back of kitchen, front of kitchen, put them in the oven, then sell it. Um, but you've got an even more of a, an experience with um, with with, uh, with wheat, and, and you also do sourdoughs as well. But can you tell us a little bit about you know what you've heard so far? Oh yeah, and so I'm, I'm, what you do. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I do sourdough. I'm quite new. I would, I would say in the sourdough world, I'm not as experienced as. Probably Brett or Andrew, that's for sure. But um, it's it's actually interesting. I think I've learned, and I, I didn't know that like sourdough croissant would be, you would add sugar in your sourdough. I think it's something new. I feel a bit stupid, but I feel like I've learned something, because yeah, like in my parcours, I've mostly you know worked for five stars hotel and things like this, and I was not really looking at. I mean, flavor was obviously important, but I was really focused on the consistency and the look of all the viennoiserie or bread or everything that I was doing. And so, yeah, I was not really focused onto this or like organic or sourdough croissant or things like this, but more into fresh yeast and like mass produce flavor, flour and, and all that just to ensure quality of my product. But now, now I know that there's a trend and like, obviously for our body, it's better to, to work like that, right? So mm. now I've kind of l left behind me this this uh, experience that I had in Five Star Hotel and turned myself more into, yeah, interest into sourdough mm. uh, as it is now. And um, no, I, I, I really enjoy it. I think there's a lot to do, yeah. yeah. And um, it's, it's funny to know that like, you know, the, the higher the, the, the wheat will grow, the, the more flavor you will get and like, also, the, the longer you will rest your bread, the more flavor you will get. So it's kind of like it's a game of waiting, right? Like the more you wait, the more you gain for yourself, right? So mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's it's interesting to hear both of your story and like realize. So tell, tell me, Roman, let's go back to the beginning because I'm interested in, in what takes a young chef or a young baker uh, in the pastry section or in the section where all you see is a container full of flour because that's all it is, right? White flour or brown flour, whatever it is, but look, let's look at this white flour and you look at it and, and you hardly see the possibility. All you see is flour and the chef says to you, weigh me four kilos of flour and mix it with the yeast and put the sugar in and make some bread. You go, okay, good. And you go auto into automatic pilot in production of bread using this wheat. So wheat 
in the earliest concept of your career was not important, right? In the early conception of your, you mean for me? Yeah. Yeah. When when I when I started? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was no, yeah, you're right. It wasn't. I was not really focusing on the quality of it, if that's what you mean. Hmm. Right. It was. Well, just, more that there's that there's not much other than it just being wheat. The production of making vinoisier, making croissant, making bread, making fine pastry, choux pastry, all of the, the, the myriad of different um, opportunities you have with wheat, you hardly know when you first begin. But then you've worked through five-star uh, five hotels, you've worked through kitchens where, where fine pastry has been vital to, to, your, to your position. Um, how did that develop? I mean, you must have got excited, you must have really understood that wheat then becomes the building block of your career, right? Yeah, so basically you learn from like just using a flower to like different type of flowers, T55, T45, they, have, they will have different strength and proteins and all that. So it gives you a different result on, so you have to experiment in a way, right? So if you want to do a recipe, so you'll try croissant with a certain type of flower and get the result at the end and try to mix it with another flower and see that it's got more strength. So it will develop more, or if you want more layering your croissant, you will Use another type of flower and like, so yeah, it's it's a learning curve for sure. You you start with one flower and then you end up using three different ones. Then, yeah. and and have you then not placed much importance on flour? So let's say um, a, a flower arrives in your kitchen, you have you struggled with organic flour? Have you to make a consistent product? I will because, especially on my viennoiserie, because I was looking for the perfect layer, the perfect. Uh, consistency in my viennoiserie has to be all the same and and I would say when I was using organic flour the, my dough would get a lot much more loose and I would struggle to have a nice volume in my viennoiserie and and consistency as well in my layers so it, it was a bit different yeah yeah for sure I struggled with that so you looked for a consistency of a mass-produced flour not particularly caring where it came from, but you just needed consistency. That's what it was. That's what it was. Then, I'm, I'm sure with organic fl flour, you can get the same result if you mix your dough differently, probably a bit more in second speed to give it more strength and, and all that. But I just, yeah, for me at this time, it was a matter of consistency. And so that's why I was using this type of mass-produced flour. Mm. And, and that then, to some degree, I mean, I'm not that anybody's looking for nutrition from vinoiserie. I, I don't mean to say that uh, you can't build it in there, but really what you're looking for is repetition, excellence, visual stimulation, and flavor. Um, can you go back to the day when you were inspired by a chef or someone who taught you how to make a milfoy or a croissant for that first time? What, what was it you thinking and, and, and how did that build your, your career? Um, I think it was my first, um, the first bakery I worked for in France, where really it was very traditional. We used the wood fire oven and all that. So it was like the super traditional way of making bread, I would say. And I really got, uh, my, my old boss was very passionate and he told me a lot of what I know today. And yeah, just seeing from flour and water and yeast to this product coming out of the oven and like serving the client. It, it's like being able to create something is really what drives me into that. And like also sharing with people, right? Making people happy because in a way, I'm not really cooking for myself, but for others, right? So. Well, but I mean, so wheat is, uh, I've been going on about wheat for the past 45 minutes saying how important it is. And because I recognize it uh, being a chef myself is that, you know, it's your staple in your kitchen, right? You have wheat, butter, eggs, uh, well, sorry, wheat, flour, butter, eggs, sugar, potatoes. You know, they, there's this sort of, you know, this background of of, um, of foundation that you have for your kitchen. Um, wheat flour has been something that um, we, we may have overlooked. And in overlooking it, have we disrespected it or not made demands on the food system as we should have as chefs? Because it seems like... All we really wanted was consistency, not particularly caring both for the planet or for the wheat or flour itself. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think I think that's what it was. We were just 
being um, uh, not being selfish on like um, I don't know how to explain that, but um, yeah, I don't think we're caring much about health and like the planet and all that. As you said, now it's like mm. people are looking more at it. Now, obviously, I don't know how to develop much on that, but uh, yeah, I mean, I. I know what you mean. Well, well, I, I'm just interested. I think what we'll do is, um, as we go into a more open panel discussion, we can really throw around the idea that um, what does a, a baker, Brett, in, in, in Bristol need, or Romain, a chef in, in uh, France or Britain or even the Middle East? I know you've been working out in the, Far East, uh, in the Middle East. And, and what do you need from someone like Andrew producing wheat? Uh, to such a, a high quality and and what do we need to uh, Andrew then say to us well Brett or, or Roman we need you uh, as chefs and bakers to understand our wheat more so so why don't we open up the floor a little bit because we've we've introduced ourselves now and we understand um, each other's capacity um, Andrew uh, I come to you what then have you heard from from two young bakers who are working uh, you know at the coal face of flour of, of bread production and, and finwasterie and pastries um, what is it that you're hearing from them that, that is either surprising or, or, or shows you hope? Um, two things uh, st struck in my mind. One is this idea of the flour having been just a staple product in the kitchen uh, and the dynamic of that has now changed. Uh, I find that very interesting because actually the reason it was a staple and the reason, reason for, for Romain saying, you know, I just needed it to function uh, consistently, day in, day out, was actually the the millers were creating that consistency by putting an enormous amount of improvers and additives into the flour in the milling process to create that consistency because they could just blend those other ingredients into a mass-produced uh, flour, particularly if the gluten quality isn't there. Uh, I don't know how that relates into patisserie particularly, but I know from a, from a bread flour production system, uh, you know, it's 11 tonnes an hour in industrial roller mill. It's just looking at, at volume. And if there's a baker who wants something specific, they'll add, they'll add something to the flour. When you have a stone ground organic flour like I produce, it has to function at a certain level the moment it comes off the stones because you can't do anything else with it. So I would say, you know, that consistency now uh, for modern bakers and, and, and patisserie chefs, that consistency is there because we're actually getting the varieties uh, under organic conditions and stone grinding them that will produce that consistency without additional additives. The, um, the, the other thing really is the nutrition side. Uh, Roman's you know, mentioned uh, being more aware of, 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 of the nutrition and the delivery of, of, of nutrition through breads and, and flour. Uh, We've ignored our gut biome for, you know, the thick end of 50 or 60 years. And I work with a, an amazing lady who runs uh, 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 the sourdough school, Vanessa Kimball, yeah. uh, in, in Northamptonshire. And she's pulled together, um, you know, uh, uh, grain specialists like myself, all looking at the implication and the impact. Um, so we have to, I think, come away from the idea that white flour is a nutritional product. It isn't. There is no nutritional value in white flour whatsoever. You might as well eat your t-shirt, Arthur, uh, uh, to get the nutrition you require. Uh, there is none. All of the nutritional value in, in, in wheat is in the bran casing in the endosperm. And industrial milling removes that. Um, so if we want to look at how we affect nutritional delivery, actually how sourdough works as a, as a delivery vehicle for our gut absolutely critical it's critical um, because of the way that the nutrient uh, a sour fermentation improves that pre-fermentation for our gut it's it's uh, it's it's so important but uh, yeah those are the things that i hear from from those conversations yeah and brett it's interesting isn't it when someone you know describes the gut microbiome as being given a bit of a kickstart by a sourdough loaf, uh, whether or not, whether you know it or not, what you're making is actually better for the person eating it. Uh, and, and you're using both white flours, but also wholemeal. Do you know much about the, the nutrient density or understanding the structure of the breads that you're producing? Um, not too much, to be honest. Um, 
obviously know that the the sourdoughs a lot better than of uh, commercial yeast just in terms of uh the long fermentation breaking down all the carbohydrates and sugars into something more digestible um so people with slight wheat intolerances are able to to eat sourdough bread a lot better um you know provided they're not celiacs Romano, I was interested in when you say about um, patience. Uh, I really like the concept of, of, of waiting. Um, is that something that, so Brett, you wait quite a long time, sometimes overnight. You'll, you'll, you'll prove your dough, you'll fold it back, you'll put it in the fridge for 24 hours, and then you'll come back to it. Romano, is that a, a, um, a practice that you've not done before, or is, are you interested? Yeah. It is, uh, it is the same thing. But uh, for sourdough, I totally understand. I, if I do sourdough, it would take me two days. Uh, I know it can take up to three days, even more. I mean, if you, you can work with it and make it as long as you want, yeah. And Brett, and, and you've come across making that sourdough because you, you've extended the length of it because of baking opportunities or because you thought it's a better loaf after three days? Um, bit of both. We, um, we kind of hit on the development of needing to stretch out the, the period of time that we make it in again small team it's just working within the limitations of what we've got that you kind of do it and then you're like ah, actually it's it's much better this way all right so interesting that the that, that time can sometimes be a factor in producing something that's um that's better to eat my assumption is is that the the wheat has had the more opportunity to absorb more water there's more structure um, it, perhaps the water's allowing some of the nutrients to, to pass across the cell membranes. Because um, I know, um, Roman, that the pastry and vinoisia, it's not just bakery or, or cooking. It's also, you know, it's like a science. It's like chemistry, isn't it? I mean, I've always said that, that the rest of the kitchen was like biology and the pastry section was like chemistry because it, it's very particular, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean... Yeah, you you can play around with the recipe in bakery, but in pastry it's it's kind of more difficult. Yeah, he will slap back at you very easily <laughs> if you yeah. don't follow the recipe. Yeah, something will split, something will change, something. Oh, will, yeah, something yeah, won't yeah, work, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The flour to use is the flour to use, and <laughs> like not another one. It's it's very meticulous, I would say, compared to bakery. Yeah. Now, Roman, tell me a little bit because the, the, some of the work that you do on your in your social media uh, pictures. I mean, you don't take the most amazing pictures of bread. And, and Brett, your picture of this morning's uh, sourdough pan au chocolat was fabulous. But Roman, you've got these unbelievable coloured croissants. You've got the vinoisier looks just stunning. How do you go about setting up a delicious croissant? And, and, and what, what gives you inspiration to make these uh, make these desserts? They look at seasonal flavour obviously seasonal flavor then it depends if i want something more for breakfast more to enjoy in the afternoon mm. or even in the evening why not so it really depends I'm, it kind of comes into my mind and i'm like okay maybe i should do this uh, or sometimes it was when i was working you know in five star hotel it would be a special event for a special guest that special requirement and so i would have to adapt to it and create something for them so i was in a way forced to create and renovate the game of like my product all the time really mm-hmm. and and i i've always you know the pastry section has always been a, a world of magic for me and um, because sometimes you can turn something very plain an egg butter, sugar, flour, into something that's just beyond magical. Um, can you tell us some stories about how y- you would think through the process of, let's say you have 10 ingredients and you've got vanilla, egg, butter, sugar, uh, and the flour, of course. What goes through your mind? You know, I, I, I want to produce the most fantastic eclair or the most amazing millefeuille or the most delicious croissant. What's the process in your mind? Take us through what you're thinking. I know you're saying, oh, somebody says, they want me to do this or that, but but surely inside you there's a passion, there's a there's a there's a willingness to make change. You always work if it's in into pastry. You always work with I would say basic recipe. You know, uh, a shoe paste will always be a shoe paste. Then mm-hmm. um, you can make it softer if you want it more more soft. Actually, and when mm-hmm. you eat it, mm-hmm. you can add some crisp with a crackler on top. But I would say you work with basic recipe, then you adjust it to get the result that you are looking for. So you work more on texture, mostly. And um, then after is the same, you can do, 
if you want to do a ganache or a cream, mm. it's kind of similar. You know, there, there's always basic recipe, then you work with the flavor that you want. There's no, I mean, I haven't created any recipe. Like <laughs> I would say, I, I, I kind of like use basic recipe, change flavors, maybe a little bit of the texture. And that's what it is, yeah. But it's interesting, although although you might not claim to own a recipe, for example, like uh, choux pastry or uh, brioche, it still has your character in it, right? I mean, you know, if you give the same recipe to 10 people, it's going to be a different every time, right? Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, because 70% of the recipe is love, right? It's passion, because at the end, all bakers or pastry chef, like we are all the same. We all work with the same basic ingredients, which is, as you said, like flour, butter, egg. We all have the same ingredients, more or less. Like, I mean, it can be certain different type of quality, but we all have the same basic ingredient. And then it always come to the personality of the person who, do, who does it. Mm. And yeah, I would say 70% of it, yeah, it's, it's love. And like the more passionate you are, the more it will show on your final product. Brett, do you think your personality comes out in your bakery? I'd really hope so. Uh, probably means it's a bit anarchic, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so let, let's say you're looking for a good loaf of bread. You're looking for the crust. You're looking for it to rise. You're looking for it to split. You're looking for it to crack. Uh, what are the characteristics that you will look for in a good loaf of sourdough bread? And then how do you adjust if it's not right? Um, I want a nice, deep, dark crust. I know that's not necessarily everybody's thing, but I think... Uh, I mean, when I, when I started baking, everybody's um, thing was like, oh, don't bake it too dark. People don't like it. And it's just not true. <laughs> you know, we, we like to take it reasonably dark and pe people do appreciate it. Nobody's come in and said it's burnt. Um, in terms of crumb, want a nice open structure. I know, again, the kind of trend is for something that's really light and big and airy but i'd like to kind of dial it down so you can still put your butter and jam on without everything falling through <laughs> mm, yeah 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 absolutely and uh, and uh, Romain, i love your point about 70 percent of uh, bakery and, and patis patisserie is is love uh love is essential obviously into producing bread uh and and uh, vinoisier in fact everything right not just flour but i think we, we are quite focused on that how much love do you put into your bread bread i mean what, what, what is it how much passion are you are you generating in these loaves as much as i can yeah. <laughs> i yeah. put as much as i can no but uh i mean yeah always people around me tell me when they see me baking they're like wow there is there's an alchemy happening between you and and your product we can tell you know you look mm -hmm. at it in a certain way and and it also it's it's kind of a relationship i think brett would probably agree with that but when you make bread you have to understand your bread and you have to understand what you want to do as well so it's kind of like you know you need to not communicate to your dough i'm not talking to my dough but in a way if, if i understand that the dough needs to rest for another 30 minutes or if i need to give it another fold to give it more strength it's like it's a relationship from the day I st from the moment I started until I bake it. It's yeah, I'm kind of like building a relationship with my dough and to create a product. Brett, what do you think to that? No, absolutely. Um, again, I'm not talking to my dough either, but it it is almost a symbiotic relationship. If that doesn't sound too crazy, I mean, you've you literally because of the nature of sourdough, every day is possibly a different variable the the temperature in the past week or two has dropped by another five degrees so you've got to factor that in you've got to factor in how hot the bakery is whether it's raining overnight that that kind of thing all all those little things so it as well as love it's absolute focus on on the dose every day you've got to be attentive Okay, so uh, Brett and, and uh, Roman, we're looking now at love and understanding and talking to your sourdough or your pastries, or not talking to, I'm not claiming you talk to them. But Andrew, uh, when we've got bakers and pastry chefs in the kitchen talking of love and understanding that nearly 70% of the product's passion you know, is love, is going into these, um, uh, these breads and these pastries, love surely plays a role in what you do with wheat production. Oh, yes, passion is everything. Uh, I think you have to, 
you have to uh, um, recognize that in every farmer, um, whatever they're doing, uh, the hours that we spend um, tending our landscape uh, is is everything. And I have a, a, a real deep love for the landscape that uh, that I've helped create here. And when we look at what we do collectively, but and individually, when I look at what I do, uh, it's about retaining the value of the landscape within the community. And that never became more relevant for me than during lockdown. And the the passion that I've brought to retaining the the biological, cultural and economic value of our landscape within our community really, really hit home during during lockdown. Uh, firstly, when people near to us wanted to get out of, uh, of, of their house in lockdown, they would just come and sit in. They would just come. And, we have two or three footpaths going through our farm. But they would just come and watch us going about our work, you know. Um, I was just working the sheep one day, and I had this family with their children just sitting on the on the stile uh, over the on, on the bridge, going over one of the streams, and they were just they were just entranced by what we were doing. And for me to see other people enjoying what we create is is a um, during that time was very special. It was really special. Uh, I, I think what really hit home to my to my staff because we never we never missed a heartbeat during lockdown and it's 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 difficult for me now because we're all dog tired <laughs> we're absolutely on our chin straps after nine or ten months of milling and farming but um uh initially uh when lockdown started and we had people calling us up in absolute desperation from their closed uh restaurants in london trying to still bake and they were just desperate for, for any flour at all. And we realized suddenly actually that the only truly important things that people needed uh, uh, at that time was, was friendship and food. Hmm. And we could provide the food bit and I suppose the friendship in terms of the connection that we uh, had with those, those customers. Um, but it made us really sit up and, and, and really acknowledge the value of what we were doing. Uh, and I've always had a passion for that, Arthur. I think that's, you know, that, 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 that comes from just being so deeply involved in what we do, but actually see the results of that in other people's gratification and, and satisfaction um, made us really appreciate the work that we were doing for ourselves, actually. Uh, and for my staff, you know, we were so meticulous about how we produce that flour in the mill and, and the quality of cleaning the grain and, and prepping it. And you, you have to have a passion for it. And, 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 and the love of that actually comes from other people's appreciation of what we do. Um, and that that is, you know, that's all the gratification we need, really. Yeah. And how, uh, Roman, if you, as you hear a wheat producer talk about the love and passion for wheat, what would you like to ask Andrew? Is there anything that from, from a vinoisier pastry bakery, you know, what would you say to someone who's producing wheat? Uh, what kind of questions would you ask him, either in the field or the mill, or what would you like to hear? Mm, I don't know if I would have a question. I would probably say thank you to him because he's producing amazing product. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had the chance to have friends work in mill as well. So I, I kind of like understand the way he's working. But yeah, no, I think, yeah, as I said, just thank you. And I think now it's on our side as me and Brett to make the effort to work with this guy, this kind of miller that are more onto the organic side and make the effort to adapt our recipe to his flour and not not choosing the flour basing on, on our recipe, I would say. That's interesting, Brett, isn't it? Choosing now the flour of a miller who's perhaps connected more to the soil and to nature and, and to perhaps organic, not that we're, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, saying that organic is, is the only way, but responding perhaps and, and um, requesting from millers this type of love and passion. It's interesting, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. Um, like you said at the, the, the start, um, sourdough becoming a big thing in the past sort of 10, 15 years. 
um, for me as a chef and a baker, you know, these conversations are still quite a new thing for people to do. When I first came into the kitchen, you use a certain type of flour, like Romain did. You use, you use a T55 for something and it's like, uh, you know, chef, why do we use that flour? It's like, oh, because of a friend of a friend of a friend <laughs> who worked out in France said, you know, T T55 is the one that you use for it. And you don't question it. You just say, yes, chef. And, you know, the, the conversation about... Um, you know, British flowers, let alone organic flowers, just wasn't there. So it's it's a very new thing, and I think chefs and bakers have to look at it more carefully and you know open up the discussion because so much stuff, especially about baking and I think patisserie as well, is um, there's a lot of tradition and um, sort of a lot of fallacies in it almost that you you get told over and over again about things that just aren't true like it doesn't have to be this certain type of flour you know you always hear double zero for pasta you can still make good pasta with any decent bread flour you know it double zero is going to be better but you know we we shouldn't just be buying that thing because you know that's that's an inherent tradition you should always be thinking you know can can we change to this can we change to that you know is 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 a whole meal suitable for it you know and andrew would you mind yeah. just a, is there a revolution coming i mean can you feel i mean do we have to change the way we produce wheat and and, and do we have to have chefs and bakers pick up the new varieties and, and and these high qualities in order to make us a more resilient planet um is there a revolution coming uh i think it's already happened actually arthur okay. uh when you when i listened to to roman and, and brett you know they're already doing it uh they're already questioning you know, do I have to use a Tipo Zero for this? Do I have to use a T45, 55? I mean, those, those, those markers are, that's just ash content. You know, that just tells you how white the flour is. It doesn't tell you whether it's any good. It just tells you how white it is. It's actually telling you how little nutrition is in there. So Tipo Zero, no nutrition, none. T45, you know, 45 milligrams for every gram of flour that's burnt in a crucible is ash. Uh, that means there's a tiny bit of so yeah I mean the, the you know you guys are doing it already I think what uh, what is interesting for me as I as I edge towards the end of my working life uh, is seeing this next generation of, of farmers coming through that are already linked in uh, in the southwest uh, down into Cornwall and Devon and, and, and Somerset tremendous grain network developing developing amongst young farmers, millers and, uh, and bakers and chefs, really lovely to see in uh, farms just, you know, outside London, uh, connecting to that. Uh, it's, it's already there. I think all I've done in my working life is just open up the idea and the possibility to the idea of using different grains than we've, than we've been using for the last 70 years uh, and creating opportunities for farmers to grow different cereals on request directly to, 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 uh, um, to bakers and chefs who, who want to offer something different um, where there is nutrition. Uh, I've been working with a pasta, a pastificio in, in London for the last seven years. Uh, beautiful, beautiful wholemeal pastas made with emma and einkorn and spelt. Um, you know, that's not Tipo Zero and it's not Durham wheat. Uh, it's you know it's it's the semolina and, and the wholemeal from our grains and yeah that that revolution I think is 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 it's underway it's underway uh, and I think the landscape through uh, through public demand uh, will uh, will change that uh, food security is a big one we can, we can wax lyrical about it because we're not hungry at the moment um, but that that changed during lockdown I think people really valued that food and friendship link that I mentioned earlier and the quality of our food is everything. And the greatest teachers, I think, of, uh, of, of where the public can be educated uh, is, is at, the, at the chef's table. Uh, the chefs like to say, this is where, and, 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 the, and the baker standing at his own uh, till uh, when, 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 it, when they were talking to the customers, this is where this bread's come from. And every every food that has a has a story attached to it tastes better. We know that psychologically. 
Um, and I think we, we're, we're piquing the public's interest now into, into being inquisitive and being adventurous uh, and being respectful of, uh, of where that food has come from and how it's been produced. Uh, and I, I take great heart in that at my age, yeah. That's lovely, Andrew. And Brett, you're seeing that every day with the customers coming into your cafe, isn't it? I mean, you're really seeing this sort of friendship, this, this continuing need for connection. And uh, the simplest thing is, is bread, salt, water, and a little sourdough starter. And, and then you break bread together, and there's this sort of sense of togetherness just around a, a loaf of bread, right? Um, especially during lockdown, it's gone from being something that's been purely based on hospitality to to something communal and community based and just seeing the response from people back of it being uh, uh, a daily requirement not just something that's you know a, a weekly shop thing it's something that people want every day and they they have their places that they want to come and and get it from and luckily one of them's us yeah. Arthur, can I just add? Please you, do. You, took, you, just, you just mentioned the word friendship. Uh, actually, the root of the word friendship is, is, is a companion. And the word companion is derived from Italian, which is with bread, compan. Uh -huh. And the Italians, the form of friendship was to share bread with somebody else. That was a mark of, of your deep trust and, and friendship with somebody else, was the companionship. So the, it's, it's, it's rooted in our, in our, in our psyche breaking bread with people, yeah. Well, I think this has been the perfect way to start a Food FM radio station is to talk about companionship, to understand, to share bread, to know that wheat being the staff of life, certainly in the West, has been something that we've built so much on communities, households, um, countries uh, on bread. Um, it, it's been fabulous to be able to hear all of your points and, and um, I think it's... It's been great to get not only a wheat producer, but a baker and a, and a baker of Inuasier to, together to actually say, well, how, I mean, although the revolution started, we're obviously standing on pedestals ourselves to be able to continue this, this revolution. Roman, as a leader in, in the field and, and some of the wonderful work that you do, um, how do you see you're going to be moving forward over the next three to five years? I mean, not next year, but there's, there needs to be some time, like you said, um, put into change and development of how the food systems work. Have you got anything in mind as to, as to what you're going to be doing as you move forward? Uh, so moving forward, I will be moving to Ireland next year. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so, and I will be focusing, actually, I would like to open a bakery, cafe, and essentially focus on sourdough bread and and Viennoiserie. So, oh, wow. I need to come to Ireland just for that. Andrew, perhaps you have a good uh, contact for Roman in, in wheat production in Ireland. Okay. Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, email me and I'll definitely uh, I'll, I'll give you some, some good contacts out there. Yep. Yeah, very good. So, yeah, yeah. And, um, so that's, that's my next move, I would say, and what I want to focus on for the next five years. It's creating nice Viennoiserie and bread and selling it to the Irish community. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Um, Brett, what do you think? Uh, three to five years, I know we can only talk about a year around the corner, but three to five years, bread development, business development, but, but how do you see you know, the, the wider aspect of, of what you're doing in this industry? I mean, have you got any a sense of direction? We're still very much in the infancy of what we're doing at Baker's, so the goal in the next couple of years is to, going to be build the range, sort of hone in on what we want to do again work with some more heritage flowers try and provide something a bit more unique and just kind of be a bit different to what everything else in, in bristol is offering and again just try and push the limits of what we can do with just working with the sourdough and andrew although you say you're coming to the end of your your sowing days uh, in the fields <laughs> and, and harvesting it would be a, it would be terrible to think that that you're not planning or, or have any concept of the next three to five years. Have you got any thoughts as to the direction, not just for yourself, but 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 food and wheat production in general in in the UK? Yeah, I, I still love. My, I really, I really, for me, the passion is, is understanding, unlocking that uh, uh, that that that's that secret in nature. So I still do a lot of research work uh, into variety selection and uh, we're looking at population wheats. Uh, to to build resilience into our into our corn fields, 
Um, I'm, I'm training up young uh, millers uh, working with me at the moment to, to go out and do that elsewhere. Uh, work very closely with um, uh, with Newcastle University in, in, in bringing cereal uh, health into um, into the medical school's nutrition uh, um, uh, courses. Um, so yeah, there's 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 lots for me to be doing, uh, and and I certainly see a, a big role in just being at the end of the telephone for young farmers and millers and, and growers to say you know. Give us the give us the knowledge, you know. Give us the benefit of your experience in uh, in in closing that uh, that journey to to getting better breads quicker out, uh, better flour quicker out into into the bakeries. So yeah, there's there's plenty for me to do, even if I'm not uh, you know standing behind the plough anymore. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, you know, I think that the the, the passion and and the love that comes out of uh, of all three of you is is uh, is apparent, and um, you know, is is important that uh, you know we drive forward with um, a better understanding of nutrition and and wheat growing and uh, harvesting, but also baking breads and and passion for sourdough, and and I can't wait to try Romain's vinoiserie in Dublin. You go to Dublin, Romain, or where are you going? Dublin, Dublin. Dublin. Yeah, Dublin. very yeah. cool. That's yeah, a super cool town. Um, well, city, I should say. Um, uh, Brett, uh, Roman, Andrew, um, uh, we're perhaps just going to wrap this up with a final thought from each of you. Um, and after that final thought, we'll say our goodbyes. Um, Roman, have you got any last uh, points you'd like to make around wheat, bread, and uh, yeah, is that anything in general? No, as, as I say, I think we all have to move forward in the direction of organic and more healthy products. And so I think the the panel that we had today was a very good example to say that the world is going the right way and the right direction. So hopefully it's gonna keep going like this, yeah. No, I think I'd just second what Roman said. Essentially, um, it's all going in the right direction. Uh, I think in general, we just need to look at a way to turn the general public onto more of these wheats rather than just being reliant on white flour okay thank you brett and andrew uh, a last uh, parting uh, point uh, eat more wholemeal <laughs> eat more wholemeal we're throwing too much of the good stuff away uh, um, to be able to sustain ourselves uh, on this planet um, we can't throw 30 percent of our harvest away in the bran uh, and 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 have and have poor, you know, and have malnutrition uh, in our communities. Eat more wholemeal. That's my message. There we go. Brett, more wholemeal bread, please. Uh, Roman, more wholemeal vinoiserie. Uh, we'll work on whole... it. Yeah. <laughs> <a> challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't thank you three enough. I really appreciate your time and, and all of your insights. It's been a hugely passionate and, and eye-opening um, uh, set of discussions. Um, Andrew, Romain and Brett, thank you so much for joining us. And, My pleasure. Um, thank uh, you. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank, thank you. you very Take much. Care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. You've been listening to Arthur's Table on Food FM with Arthur Potts-Dawson.